Hello and welcome to episode 58 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people that create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. A couple notes for you today related to upcoming closure-oriented conferences. Uh, first, I want to mention that the Closure Conj call for proposals will open up Monday, June 16th. This is 2014. Uh, the conference itself is held uh, November 20th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Like I said, the call for proposals, however, is open on Monday, June 16th, which I believe is actually um, before we're going to post this episode, so it should be open now. Um, you can find out more information, including about how to submit your proposal at the conference website, which is closure-conj.org. In other conference news, uh, we have got a few people speaking at the upcoming Euroclosure conference. Euroclosure is going to be held June 26th and 27th in Krakow, Poland. Again, we're talking 2014 here. And we have um, two Cognitex who are keynoting. Uh, Rich Hickey and David Nolan will both be giving keynote addresses. And I believe Stuart Sierra is also speaking at that conference. So if you're going, um, check those out and have a good time. Um, that's all I have as far as announcements for now. So we will go on to episode 58 of the Cognicast. So welcome, everyone. Today is Friday, June 6th, 2014, uh, and this is the Cognicast. Today we are very, very excited to have on the show one Paul DeGrandis. Welcome, welcome, Paul. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. It's always been a dream of mine to be on the show, as you know, so I'm glad we got a chance to do it. You need bigger dreams, sir. <laughs> um, so I want to ask you before we get going the usual question, uh, which is the music. What have we selected for the intro? Sure. We're going to listen to Space Between Mountains by a band called Kid Crash. Cool. And so you sent these over to me. Some people do, some people don't, but it is, you sent these over to me a little bit before the show, and I actually listened to a bit of uh, the songs. And this, um, I don't know, how would you characterize this? To my ear, it's a little bit progressive. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So there's definitely some finger-tapping and uh, interesting time switches in it. I would call it post-punk or post-hardcore. Something in that something in that range. Yeah, it was interesting actually uh, listening to it. Uh, that punk was one of the words that came to my mind too. But then as I listened to it more, I was like, "This is mega complicated compared to what I would normally think of as punk." You know, which is yeah. three chords and a vague sense of time. Right. <laughs> Everything is four 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 measures and four four time. Yeah, exactly. So you're you're actually uh, uh, this this not the main thing I want to have you on the show to talk about today, but you yourself you would consider yourself a musician, yes? Oh yeah, definitely. Yep. So uh, why don't I mean I know we've gotten together and you've um, pounded on the drums, but I I believe you are a, a multi instrument person. Am I wrong about that? 
Yeah, no, guitar is definitely my best instrument, and uh, I also play drums and violin, and then I have a bunch of recording gear, and I used to be a DJ for a while. I do all of that, you know? So I think our listeners are gathering something that has uh, been evident to me uh, since more or less the moment I met you, which is that uh, you never sleep because you've done a million interesting <laughs> things, and you've got a ton of great stories. We, uh, I mean, look, I normally say this farther into the show, but I'll just state it right now. I think we're going to have to have you back because there's no way we could get through all of the interesting things that you have done and are doing. But there is one thing that I um, was, at least one, there's actually a couple things. There's something I thought maybe we could talk about today, a couple things, and then uh, we can go from there. Sure. Um, so the reason I thought now would be a good time to talk to you here in early June of 2014 is that um, you are the primary, you can correct me if I'm wrong with this characterization, but I believe it's fair to say you have taken up the implementation of Pedestal and have recently released version 0.3.0. Is that a fair way to put that? That is definitely a fair way to put that. I, I would consider myself sort of the Pedestal lead at this point. Um, there's definitely a bunch of people helping me, including you know the original authors of a lot of these pieces, but... I'm definitely leading the charge, and when the listeners hear this, you know, 030 should be out at that point. Cool. So, um, I mean, the obvious question is, what's new? What's new in Pedestal 030? Actually, let's a couple things. First of all, one of the things that's important to point out is, because we've talked about Pedestal on the show before, is that the precise meaning of Pedestal has changed yes. somewhat from the last time we talked about it. And I wonder if you could talk about that and then about what uh, what Pedestal means now, specifically how it's different from O2O. So a few months ago, uh, we broke a bunch of hearts <laughs> and we told the internet basically that Pedestal app will be put on ice for now. It's going to be frozen. We're not going to actively develop it. You know, you're free to use whatever is in master right now. And you know, we'll go ahead and we'll we'll freeze it inside of a Git repo and you you know do whatever you want with it. But going forward, when we say pedestal, we mean pedestal service, and we're not going to say service anymore because there's only one pedestal. So when I say pedestal, I mean you know it's a set of libraries that you know tried to bring you know the language and the principles of closure, uh, you know simplicity, power, and focus to server side development. It's going to be fast by default, and it's going to be secure by default, and it's really for building these enterprise-grade services that really operate at scale. So yeah, I know a lot of people are a little heartbroken, but there's definitely a lot of reasons for that switch. Well, I don't want to dwell on it too much, but I do think it's um, it's actually, I, I think it was done for good reasons, and I, I don't think we should be uh, in any way ashamed to share those. So I wonder if you could touch on why we decided to, um, however you want to put it, pause pedestal app or set it aside or whatever, like you said, put it on ice. What was the what was the thinking that led us to make that decision? So uh, one of the one of the major things that came out is as we and I say we, but really it was a large effort by Tim Ewald and Brent Ashworth and uh, Rich Hickey. As you know, the design for Pedestal App, what was then O three O, was being worked out. It was all based on core async channels, and it was all channel based, and it was this data flow engine that was just tied together by channels, uh, which had a lot of very interesting and um, powerful aspects that you could define how you wanted back pressure and propagation to happen through your application. And, you know, you could tap into different channels at different points. And it had this aspect to it that is, you know, it's an aspect that comes up in a, a lot of systems that I like, which is it had three to five basic principles. And then everything else was, you know, some orientation of those principles constructed together. And then uh, React came out. And React solved one of the major problems that Pedestal App 
wanted to solve but never really got a good answer for, and that was how do you end up handling rendering? So with React and Core Async, the, the rest of the stuff in Pedestal App didn't really need to be there. With Channels and with Core Async, you could recreate the sort of microkernel of a data flow engine around React, and you would basically have Pedestal App 0.3.0. That ends up being a lot more flexible of a solution. So we want to see how the landscape plays out and how you know, things like OM and QSN and all these other libraries around React sort of play out in the long run. And that said, I mean, creating that data flow engine from core async channels is super simple. I've definitely done it on client projects, and I've definitely done it on personal projects, and it's only about, I don't know, maybe you know, 30 lines, definitely no more than 100 lines to redo that. So that's the main decision there. I just want to see where the landscape goes and, and what needs really need to be solved. Yeah, it's a funny thing, right? I mean, as, as proud as we are of the people that we have working here at Cognitech, you know, there's a lot of other smart people out there working on a lot of interesting ideas. And some of them came along and did some stuff, and it was like, oh, wow, that's that's a really interesting way to tackle this. And things shifted, and, and here we are. So um, that yeah. does leave us with Pedestal Service, however, which we still use and think is um, a really good piece of technology that we very happily employ in client projects and that um, you have been continuing to work on. I actually am really glad that uh, that it's now just called Pedestal. I, I mean... <laughs> In retrospect, I think it was probably a mistake on our part to name those two technologies yeah. the same thing because they weren't they, they were weren't complementary. The they weren't. They were complementary, but they were not the same thing. So, yeah. so here we are with a, with pedestal, meaning the thing that used to be called pedestal service. As you said, it's about writing uh, web services. So we've talked a bit about pedestal service before. So we don't need to dive into it too much because I think at, at its core it's still the same. But yeah. maybe you could hit the highlights. And, you know, just like what's the model for a couple minutes, and then we can talk about what has changed in the most recent version. Sure. So, I mean, Pedestal is still based around the concept, or at least the major abstraction of the interceptor, right? At the core of Pedestal is just this chain of interceptors, and those interceptors take and return a thing called a context, which is just a, a hash map. And that context holds the request and the reply together. And that single abstraction allows Pedestal to operate completely asynchronously. Um, so this really means that, you know, if you're sitting inside of a container or you're using, you know, the latest and greatest servlet technology, or you even want to operate it on top of Nginx Closure, you know, Pedestal can do all of those things. It has the fundamental abstraction to really leverage async stuff. So when I say operate at scale, I'm really talking about that particular uh, design decision. And that's a big deal because, you know, if, if you're doing stuff up to a certain point, then the kind of synchronous models that are available, I mean, Ring is very popular and we still use that all the time too because it's, it's appropriate across a wide variety of solutions. Definitely. But you get to some point where having, having a thread dedicated to each request from beginning until end starts to hurt you. And so yeah. that's, that's why the async is a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, that's the, that's the idea, you know, and... Uh, still the same idea. A couple of details have changed in the lower levels, and certainly there's way more stuff coming down the pipeline, and still the same approach. Okay, so then what have we, uh, well, I say we, like I had any hand in it at all, but <laughs> what, what have, you know, I know it's been mostly uh, you and, uh, and a couple of people. What, what's different? What's the, what's the, the cool, what's the new hotness in 030? Yeah, there's, a, there's a, a short list of new hotness in 030. First of all, you know, there are just a lot of performance optimizations that I went through and made. Some of those were just, you know, as small as, you know, putting in type hints where appropriate to make certain spots a little faster. And 
And some of them were as complicated as changing up the connection code to make the connection code leverage lower level details about the actual containers that Pedestal runs on top of. The SSE stuff, all the server sent event stuff is all core async channel based. And so the code shrank, you know, to something like a fifth of the original SSE code size. So, you know, way less code and, and significantly faster to do that. What's really interesting now is that when you want to use SSE, what Pedestal hands you back is this channel, and uh, you just use it like a core async channel, and all, whatever you put in the channel is going to go across the SSE connection. So uh, just for anybody that's not familiar, so SSE is server sent events. It's a, a way to asynchronously send data back to, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's in a way to asynchronously send data back to the client, kind of like WebSockets, but it's all straight HTTP long yep. polling but with browser support, so you have some some nicety that's actually baked into the, the browser around it. Yeah, I mean, I, it came out of an evolution of, you know, everybody was doing long polling or comment or some form of that, and it was basically just a hack on top of another hack. And then HTML5 came out, and they said, well, you know, we should do this the right way. We should have browser support and really optimize for it, and, and that's what SSE is. Um, and then you can go one step further and, you know, have bidirectional full streaming, basically raw TCP sockets, um, and that is uh, WebSockets, obviously. And I don't want to ruin the surprise, but we di I didn't finish WebSockets yet, and WebSockets is still sort of a work in progress, but uh, 031 will be the release that has WebSockets in it. So. <laughs> <laughs> I like that adding WebSockets uh, comes down to a, a point release. Yes, yeah, it's <laughs> like that's just a, it's like a minor thing. Yeah, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. Yeah. So um, SSE also has a heartbeat mechanism in order to keep that connection open. And the, the heartbeat was optimized. The thread pool that manages the heartbeat also was optimized in Pedestal. Dependencies were all bounced up to the most recent stuff. So that's Jetty 9, Tomcat 8, Closure 1.6, and Servlet 3.1. And uh, that means that there's a minimum requirement that Pedestal needs the JVM 1.7 or higher uh, at this point, if you need to run it on 1.5 or 1.6, you need to use an older version of Pedestal. I'm just going to keep going through this list. Is that yeah, all right? Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, no, this all is right. good stuff. So um, there's a notion of HTTP verb smuggling. This comes into play when you want to you know, smuggle different types of requests across uh, to Pedestal. And uh, previously, that was closed off. And now that is all opened up and configurable and programmatically controlled inside of Pedestal. So this is the thing where you can do a put even though at the HTTP level it's really a post? Yep. Okay. Yes. Yep. Okay. So there was a bunch of small security updates to the core pieces of uh, Pedestal. Uh, the first one uh, got pushed all the way back into Ring itself, which was that uh, sessions by default should be HTTP only. Another one was that CSERF protection interceptor is part of the default interceptor stack. So when you start a service uh, with Pedestal, if you don't specify an interceptor chain that you want to start with, a default one is provided for you. And that just gives you sort of the best trade-off between raw speed and functionality and security. So CSERF protection is default when you turn on sessions. And that's, you know, that's pretty good. And, uh, yes, yeah, that, that, thank you, Aaron Bedra, right? I mean, I think his yeah. talk at um, Closure West kind of woke a lot of people up to the fact that uh, there's more that we as a community could do to, to push our software into a mature direction with respect to security. 
Yeah, and you know, I definitely agree with the idea that secure by default is a good thing, and if it's not performant enough, you should have to go out of your way to shut it off. You know, like that's an okay thing. I wish my doors would lock automatically, and I have to like make an effort to unlock them. You know, so another thing that happened is uh, inside of Pedestal, you can now get at the can the app app server's context during setup, and this is sort of the lowest level that you can get at during uh, like app creation. Uh, and that lets you put servlet filters inside of your pedestal application. So every servlet filter that exists can now be used inside of a pedestal application right inside of your service map configuration. So that means like really fast gzip filters or QoS settings or DDoS protection or even something like Spring Security now is fair game for pedestal application. You just plop the servlet filter right there in your description and it, it gets connected up and that's so the server filters are kind of the moral equivalent of um middleware in ring or rack or um pedestal interceptors right yep yep and it it operates at the container level so uh, the difference is that you know interceptors are just for your particular application uh and that's you know fine but if you want something to happen very fast and at at the lowest level in the container that you possibly can server filters are your only option and you know that makes sense for a Java application where your application is the servlet. So, uh, but yeah, it's basically middlewares at the container. Okay. Uh, there was obviously a namespace refactor, and now that pedestal is just called pedestal and not pedestal service. We got to drop a couple of characters there in all of the namespaces. So there's like a big. You'll see that I am the author of every single file now because I had to because <laughs> <laughs> I had to change just the namespace. That's what this was really about. This is and some it sort was. Of crazy yeah. land grab on your part. <laughs> yeah. And um, there's a secure headers interceptor, and uh, that is I'm wrapping that up right now, and that is the last thing that's holding back the 030 release. I'm just about done with it, so definitely by the time the listeners hear this, that will be in there. And secure headers will be on by default in the default interceptor stack, and that's the last major change. Cool. Well, that's a pile of goodness. I mean, uh, I mean, I think none of that, with the exception of the namespace change, which obviously people have to go and touch their code in a trivial way, but extensively perhaps with, with that, I think uh, all of that sounds like stuff where if you're using pedestal service right now, you're not going to have major headaches moving to 030 from one of the 02 versions. No, definitely not. You know, we really tried our best to main, maintain, AP, you know, even though it's like from 0.22 to 0.30, uh, a lot of the APIs stay the same. There is a slight difference in that the way things get created now is just a series of functions that you can reassemble however you want. And that was sort of always the case. They were just buried really deep down in the implementation. And now they make up the public API. So, yeah, I saw that's a bit more streamlined where you just kind of do the usual, take this function, get the result, pass it to this function, get the result of that, pass it. And I think this will be docked, but it's I've seen what you're talking about, and it is it is a nice it is a nice refactor. Yeah, definitely. And the cool thing about all of that public API is that it's all built around uh, the service map. So, you know, the service map is very much the first-class entity across all of Pedestal at this point before you had to sort of mix and match a bunch of things, and that's not the case anymore. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, well, I know, like I said, we're using it, and so we're always carrying it forward, and I know that you in particular have been working hard on it, and you will continue to do so. Yes. Um, that said, um, it's certainly not the only thing that you've been doing with your time. Uh, one of the ones that I wanted to ask you about, um, and we kicked around a couple of other ideas, which are all equally fascinating, but maybe the next one we could talk about is a thing that I forget the code name you're using for it, because it's been a while since I've looked at it, but you have been looking at what, what did you call it? Terra? It's this thing where you're compiling closure to an alternate backend. Can you maybe 
fill yeah. in the gaps there. Yeah, definitely. So the project you're talking about is called Closure Script Terra. The code name for it was originally called Click or Cyclic, and that was uh, Cyclone, Cyclone and Closure Inspired C. And it you know phrased the question, okay, you know, I myself personally, uh, outside of Cognitech work, leverage C quite a bit. And uh, I write a lot of sort of high-performance stuff and a lot of distributed systems that involve having to operate as close to the metal as possible. And uh, I'm always on this hunt for, you know, what would, what would C sort of look like if we had to recreate it today? If we had to build a new systems language to build sort of really low-level operating system kernels or uh, distributed systems? And, you know, this is a question a lot of other people are asking, too. You know, it's sort of the main question behind Go and Rust and uh, Swift's the latest one to sort of jump into this mix. Um, and Terra was a language also. Terra is particularly interesting because if you follow high-performance computing literature, Terra was used sort of extensively on a couple of projects out of Sandia and uh, Oak Ridge National Laboratories to do HPC stuff. And the notion is that really we're getting to a point where computation is getting so complex that the systems that we're building for significant computation are so complex that we can't hand write them anymore. We actually have to write something to generate the code that will you know, build out and service that system or service that computation. And Terra was this concept casted on top of Lua. And so uh, it's, a, it's a library inside of Lua, even though it is a programming language that supports things like code generation and macros. Uh, it is manually manual memory management and you know it has the standard memory types like int long and all that other stuff it supports structs and pointers but the idea is that you're you're writing lua code that is then expanding itself into into this terra code which is then compiled down using llvm uh, as a jit and then just going straight to whatever you're sitting on top of and i said well i want that enclosure you know i want to stretch this stretch this metaphor even further. I want to write macros that can generate Terra that can then, you know, generate other code that can then be compiled all the way down to the LLVM. And I want to basically have this entire range from C to closure script to write high performance code. And that was the exploration for closure script Terra. So now the I've done some of the type of work you're talking about, I've certainly written some C, not specifically in HPC, but the, the place where I wind up wanting a native version of Clojure, if you will, is command line type apps. I mean, you can use yeah. Clojure perfectly on the JVM perfectly well. In, in some scenarios, the startup time of the JVM, um, if you're going to loop over processing, can be prohibitively expensive. But is the, is, is this the work you're doing, would it lend itself to that sort of thing? Definitely. I mean, the cool thing about Clojure Script Terra, and it's, I mean, there's a repo out there, and the, the users can dig it up, or we'll put it in the show notes, but uh, it's mostly functional. It's not quite totally done, and I don't know if I'll ever finish it completely, but it compiled down and fit to 300K. So, mm. like, here's a compiler that's generating, you know, the most advanced compilation that it possibly can generate, and it's fitting into 300K. So you could embed it into anything you wanted, or, you know, the startup time was instantaneous, more or less, so... Uh, it definitely lends itself to doing sort of scripting style applications with it. 
Now, does it have the same uh, trade-offs that ClojureScript does? I mean, so for example, you don't get, presumably you don't get eval or reified namespaces or what, what things don't you get? Yeah, so that was like one of the biggest design challenges as I was sort of digging into it. You definitely don't get eval in the way that you think you get it, but Lua itself doesn't really truly have eval either. Uh, but there's hacks to sort of go around the VM to get something that's like eval. And because Terra itself has macros to generate, well, the macros are, are Lua and they generate Terra, you had the ability to do multi-level macro rewriting from inside of ClojureScript. So not everything applies, right? Like you could write these macros in ClojureScript. They weren't really Clojure macros, but they were doing the macro rewriting that you wanted them to do anyway. So you could do things like that, but eval was not one of the things that you got. I didn't quite follow your point about macros. I mean, I, I, you know, in ClojureScript, we have the macro expansion happening at compilation time. Right. And compilation is a totally separate step from execution, unlike in a Clojure JVM process where oftentimes compilation is happening, you know. Same step, right. Yeah, exactly. You say require and, oh, that's when compilation happens. And in ClojureScript, it's happening way before on some way developer's before. machine. Is that so? Is it the same as ClojureScript in that respect, or are there some differences that I missed? So you can do that. That definitely carries forward. So the compilation, if you write macros, you know that's going to happen at compilation time. But Terra is specifically designed that its macros expand during runtime as a means to generate, you know, very high performant, very redundant, high performance code. You know, so you have the ability to write runtime expansion of, of certain uh, macros from ClojureScript, even though they're going to be unwound inside of Terra at runtime. So that, that almost sounds like it's a, a third category of thing. It's a third category of thing, and it's actually what made the implementation so crazy for my brain. Like, you start to have this, uh, what was that movie where they're, they're falling through dreams or whatever? Inception. Yeah, it was basically this moment of Inception where <laughs> you're not really sure what level you're operating at or what compiler is I mean, they're, essentially, this is a system that has you know, three compilers all running at different times. Right. And you're never really sure where you are in that chain. So I specifically set out to find out what that was like. And I found out that it was, you know, very confusing at implementing the language, but uh, pretty powerful as uh, for, for writing libraries or writing high performance code. Have you started to point this at any real problems or is it still just something you're you're kicking around? Or? Yeah, I tend not to work on projects unless I have a problem that I'm trying to solve. So this was specifically designed to solve one of those problems. And uh, I ended up, the reason why I, we didn't end up finishing it was because the amount of time that I was sinking into writing this was starting to outweigh the fact that we could just, you know, the problem wasn't so big that we couldn't write the C code or we couldn't write the Terra code straight. And we should just probably write the C code or the Terra code straight and have this thing work. Well, maybe next time you have a problem like that, you can go back and do the other 80%, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's close. The The problem is that it's going to take me 80% of the time to finish the last 10%, you know? So yeah. it's one of those problems. Except for the last 10% of that. Except for the last 10% of that, which we'll just never get done. <laughs> right. Okay, well, so we and like you say, we'll put the link in the show notes. And I guess maybe I should ask you, what would you say to people who are thinking to themselves, oh, I have a problem that sounds like it might fit. Is that something they should or should not consider for production use? If they are willing to dig in and fill out parts of the implementation where, you know, they're going to hit a big empty hole, that is, you know, 
they can they can choose to take that risk. I, it's definitely you're not going to grab it off the shelf and use it and have it solve your problem right away. I don't think it's quite there yet. But pull requests and patches very welcome for that project. And you know I have a lot of support from the actual Terra authors on that, and uh, so I can I, I'm more than willing to help anybody who wants to pick up the torch and start carrying it. Actually, I have a question for you before I ask the other one. This is something I like to ask people who have a project like this because I think one of the things that happens to people we're looking at closure as they look at the language and they really like it. They're like, this is super cool, but they're not using it at work. You know, they've done foreclosure or whatever. They've done, you know, work through some book or some resource. And now they're like, well, now what? Right. Like I don't maybe have a problem on my own. Is this something that someone who is like, what skills would somebody need in order to be helpful to you in the implementation? Could it be, I'm, I'm a decent programmer, but I, I've only just, you know, kind of gotten to the point where I can read and write closure for an arbitrary problem to some level of competence. I would not say that is the type of okay. person. I mean, like, it, it gets significantly complicated to carry the, the compiler model in your head because there are so many phases of compilation that are happening here. Like, if it was just a standard closure script backend where there was only one compilation and then you got this thing and you ran this one thing, I would totally say that is a great problem for people. I mean, the way ClojureScript is implemented really lends itself to a, a great read and, and really learning how Clojure operates as a full language. But this particular uh, backend for ClojureScript is significantly complex. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's good. That's good to know. I mean, uh, I like. I think there are tons of projects out there for people to to work on. We talked to Kovas about Session. I know he'd like help, et cetera. So it's good yeah. to know that... Uh, People should only tackle that if they um, are are uh, particularly interested in, in that type of problem. Yes. Um, yeah. So I, I guess the other thing I wanted to ask you was, so, you know, uh, Tim Baldridge gave at some conference who's... I think it's a Closure West. I think I know where you're going. Let's yeah, say yeah. it's Closure West. Right. I'm so he, he talked about Closure, r- compiling Closure, Closure, I forget one, to the LLVM, and he showed running it on a GPU. Yep. What's the overlap or difference between this project and that one? Yeah, so you'll see in the design notes for uh, CLJS Terra that I, I mentioned this, uh, Tim Ballard's, uh project too. It's in Clojure, and it, it's basically, it, it exposes parts of the LLVM compiler, and so you can write these, uh, what he calls, you know, native functions in Clojure, and those compile down to LLVM functions, and then, you know, through linking, you can run that on the GPU, or you can run that on the CPU and, and speed up some amount of, execution is very related i mean certainly uh, terra does that same single comp- compilation step where it's going to compile using lvm and you can choose where to run it right during that compilation you can say i want to compile this one function for the gpu i want to compile you know these next three functions for the cpu on weird hybrid architectures like amd's stuff where now you can compile to a single backend and the the motherboard and sort of this infrastructure decides you know, I'm going to run part of this on the GPU. I'm going to run the other part of this on the CPU. Certainly, you could do that too. The difference is that Terra is really built to to generate really complex code, right? So, Timothy's tool, you are writing the single function. You are, you know, I want to write this one add function, and it's going to get compiled down. In Terra, the model really is okay. It's a higher level model. You you think like, okay, the the ideal code for this would be like. <laughs> 5,000 unrolled function calls all in line to each other, and then like another 10,000 function calls after that. And okay, well, 
Nobody's going to write. Yeah, no one's going to write Java that. programs like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, we're getting to a point where that's the only way to really bleed some performance out of certain architectures. So, Terra is just about okay. Well, let's write this as concisely as we can, and we'll generate that. Gotcha. Um, and that's the real difference there. Yeah, I, I wonder if I could. You're probably telling me I'm wrong, but I, I'm when you're talking, I'm thinking uh, Terra is more aimed at writing programs. Right, whereas yes. it sounds like the the stuff that Tim was working on was kind of inner loop optimization in a, in an existing closure program. Right, that sounds very accurate. Yeah. Okay, cool. The the cool thing, I mean, Terra has all these other cool features. It, it, this is definitely not the time to just start listing through the features, but <laughs> dispatch is sort of open in Terra, so you can have Go style protocol structural type dispatch stuff, or you can have Java class dispatching, or you know, like. All of those, you, you basically pick and choose what kind of dispatch you want. So the dispatch that I wrote basically matched Clojure's protocols. Mm. So I was writing code that you know sort of looked like Lua, but dispatched like Clojure protocols. So it's pretty cool. That's cool. Awesome. You melted my brain, but I'm so. But I'm going to ask you about more stuff anyway. So one of the things <laughs> that we were kicking around uh, when we were talking about doing the show was. But how did you even describe this? It was like it sounded impossible to me. You had you you said you've been thinking about how to get you know really good performance out of out of cloud environments. Or I'm murdering your your description of it. Maybe I should just let you say it. Yeah, I mean, so there's this bigger problem here, and the bigger problem is when you're writing high performance code, more often than not, you you have a bag of tricks, and that bag of tricks are is very architecture specific, right? You know that certain CPU architectures or certain RAM architectures or whatever have certain behaviors and you have a set of really weird cryptic, sometimes assembly, sometimes C, you know, code that just will completely bleed these things dry. And that's important in certain applications and definitely not important in most. But the question then becomes, well, what happens if you move this to the cloud? Certainly the 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 multi-tenacity piece is going to kill your application, but can you get as low to the metal in the cloud such that you get economic savings, you basically get economy of scale from the cloud, and the loss of performance is acceptable? So you know you're going to have to have more nodes, you know you're going to have to write code slightly different, but are you saving money or are you saving computation cycles by doing this? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the stuff that I sort of work on outside of work has to do with this exact problem, how close to the metal can you get? And I've gotten to a point where uh, we can run systems in the cloud on certain, I, I mean, this is gets down to the, you have to dial in your cloud very specifically for this to work, but where we can get bare metal speeds basically on a public cloud that you can basically get on your laptop. You know, So we're, we're not quite at the point where you're competing with supercomputer clusters or anything like that, but we're definitely to the point where you are not seeing any performance hit from operating on the cloud. And a lot of that has to do with uh, the rise of this notion of the unikernel. And uh, Mirage OS was sort of the very first, very widely publicized unikernel. That one is for OCaml. But there are other unikernels out there. And the concept is basically you write an application and you compile that application down ahead of time such that it runs directly on the hypervisor and there is no op operating system in between you and the hypervisor. So uh, it sounds like magic. I mean, the, <laughs> the thing I'm wondering is, 
so like, where's the networking stack, right? Like that's everybody's first question. Like, okay, well, if you're on the hypervisor, where's the networking stack? Well, that's actually not my question, but we'll let's get to that one in a minute. My question is, you know, I'm using the shared resource. Are you somehow getting more of it as a result? You know, someone's getting less. Like if I'm Amazon, yeah. You know, should I should I go well? As soon as a lot of people are doing this, then my whole economic model is shot. Or like, how do how do you pull that off without? Without you you don't. Yeah, I mean. Doing that approach is well. Currently, at the at the time, it's not super painful, but it's not very straightforward. And you are giving something up, right? It's a trade-off. It's not like this panacea where now we can all have blazingly fast computers on, you know, cloud deployments or anything like that. But I don't think it ruins uh, Amazon's model at all. In fact, if anything, it makes it more attractive, right? Like what you're going to lose. Potentially, Amazon doesn't even give dedicated machines, right? So Amazon's absolutely going to lose nothing. All they have is to gain by people saying, "Well, I definitely don't need dedicated machines now," and Rackspace is going to get really mad about that, you know. So, mm. but, but yeah, but, but does it, the performance gain come at the expense of somebody else? Is really no. Important. You definitely no. I mean, that what you get on the public cloud is what you get. You can't somehow trick it into giving you more. Uh, that that is not the the goal, or you know really possible you know so gotcha what, what you get is what you get so so then the i guess the the thing is is really just about you know it's that old joke right no problem in computer science can't be solved by adding a layer of abstraction except performance optimization which can always be solved by removing a layer of abstraction exactly that's the exact thing right there's so much redundancy that happens between the operating system and uh, the hypervisor, right? They're they're both doing a lot of the same job, and so you have to pay the cost twice every single time you go through that entire stack in order to get to your application. And so the idea is, well, rip everything out of the operating system that you possibly can, such that you have the smallest shim possible, so that you're sitting directly, and and then compile your application right into what would be the kernel, and put that right directly on the hypervisor. And you have to tweak the machines just right. There are settings and you know, for right for right now, I don't want to share those publicly because that is still. I mean, that took a lot of time to figure that out. And but yeah, you dial these settings in just right, and and you have bare metal speed essentially on on public clouds. Dude, you're like the sting of software. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he's a bass player that sings, and he's got kind of a high voice. So you're like at both ends, right? Yeah. Kind of working around you web stuff at the high end, and this crazy. I don't even understand voodoo. I have a degree in electrical engineering. I don't know what you. I don't know how you do that. <laughs> so uh, no, that's super cool. It's really, really interesting stuff. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, what else are you working on, man? Yeah, you know, I'm tossing a couple things around, and uh, part of the figuring out how to get the bare metal speed was to see how fast you could possibly do computational pipelines across clouds. So the next piece on top of that sort of unikernel piece was building out stream processing. The stream processing is actually built around Storm. So now you already know that I have the ability to get closure onto this unikernel thing. So you know that I'm getting closure at breakneck speeds on top of clouds. Now my secret is completely out. Nice. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. And so I have all these nodes and a couple of other systems that are backed behind it and you know some really crazy file system optimizations at that very low level to make things go even faster and have... Uh, distributed file systems and distributed RAM caches across everything and basically doing this crazy stream processing on very cheap nodes. 
So you know, you were, uh, I don't want to leave listeners hanging it because I'm wondering at it too. You mentioned uh, I, I jumped I jumped over the question, but what about networking? Right, like that was the thing. Yeah, that people always want to know. Everybody wants to know, like where where is the networking stack happening? So it's really funny. There's a lot of these really old hacks for legacy systems inside of. So first of all, I should back way up. Every single operating system uses the BSD networking stack. Like I, I don't know if everybody knows that, but you know, like Linux networking stack is just the BSD networking stack. It was like just copied over point for point, just about. It's it's everywhere except there's all these legacy hacks that are in there, and they're for legacy systems and for reasons that don't really matter. And it begs the question that when you're on the cloud and you have a completely virtual architecture underneath you, you don't need any of that whatsoever. Mm. So it involved rewriting, and I'm definitely not alone in this. There are a bunch of people working on this exact problem, and there are a couple of libraries out there. But you know, rewriting the networking stack to be highly optimized for the cloud and to remove all that garbage. Like, can you do lock-free networking and and just have no spin lock whatsoever in the in the entire kernel and have networking work correctly. And it turns out that you can, right? So removing all that legacy stuff afforded the ability to do uh, very high throughput networking stacks on top of the cloud. And so, yeah, that's part of that, you know, kernel compilation piece. As you're compiling everything down to this unikernel, you need some networking stack shim that's going to drop into whatever minimal networking stack exists in the hypervisor. And currently, this really only works on Zen. Uh, pretty much everybody targets Zen as the hypervisor. So I can see why we hired you. I mean, <laughs> if if not, aside from the fact that um, you know everybody I've talked to that's worked with you says you're you're killing it on client projects. You, you fit right in, right? Because we have people here at the company who are like, uh, uh, don't like the languages that are out there. Write your own. Yeah. Let's write our own database. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, uh, VMs are kind of okay. Let me just reinvent all that. Yeah. Well, you. I mean, it's definitely a good question, right? If if the future, everybody's saying this, right? The future is on clouds. We're going to have a bunch of ubiquitous computing devices. They're right now just cell phones, but in the future, they could be smartwatches and cell phones and this Internet of Things vision. But inevitably, expensive computation has to go somewhere. And you're either going to spread it across a mesh network of all these ubiquitous computing devices, or you're going to push computation into the cloud. And if it's in the cloud, then we should really think about very carefully if the cloud's the future, what does the computing platform for the future look like? And it certainly doesn't look like I just slapped Linux on top of a, you know, a virtualized hardware thing. Right. You know, it probably looks something more like we have an operating system that is highly optimized just for this one thing. Right. Yeah, I mean it's the old, you know, cities that have been around for thousands of years, you dig down and you find the previous version of the city, and that's not necessarily the greatest thing to build your your futuristic skyscraper on, right? You have to consider right. foundations. Right, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and so another thing is like multi-process stuff in the cloud doesn't make sense. You know, if mm. nodes are so cheap, you should run a single process on every single node. You know, right. and that that is a trade-off that you can make if you redesign the operating system, but it's not a trade-off that you can make if you're using you know, multi-processing operating systems for my laptop or my desktop or whatever. Well, that, that, that was actually a, a, a best practice in a sense in the days before cloud computing because, right. you know, you had a database. You didn't want anything running on that computer except the database right? Yeah. just for the benefit that um, uh, CPU caching would give you. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So that's, you know, that's what keeps me occupied when I'm not working at <laughs> Cognitech. Well, yeah, well, yeah, right. When you're not working at Cognitech, working keeps you occupied. No, that's exactly. really cool. I mean, uh, 
that is a ton of crazy stuff. Like, like I said, man, you're like, you're like, you've got it, you've got it going on at both ends of the spectrum. Um, I guess if you were soldering together your own computers in your garage, that might be, you're probably doing that too. (laughs) No, I I haven't quite gotten to there, but you know, the thought, all these like mini microcontrollers and and mini computers, they always, that's like the impulse buy in the, in the grocery store aisle, you know, you're checking out and you grab the gum. Yeah. But like for me, that's like when I'm scrolling around on the internet, just doing whatever. And I see those and they're like $30. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to buy 10 of these things. Yeah. I don't need 10. I, I, you know, time is a, it's a precious thing. So, so have you, have you done much with, I mean, I, I've got an Arduino sitting in front of me right now that I haven't touched in a few months, but it's there. Um, have you done much with, uh, microcontrollers? I, you've actually worked a fairly extensively, I know with, um, with the leap, which yes. is something you showed me, which is pretty cool. I've got one of those in front of me as well. I haven't done anything with that either. Hey, there's a pattern there. Um, <laughs> but have you done much with, uh, have you done much, have you done anything interesting with, uh, like a Arduino or a Raspberry Pi or a BeagleBone or anything like that? Yeah, the only thing that I ever I ever sort of did with that stuff was had to do with the leap motion, and that was building smart switches for houses. So you mount a leap motion on top of one of these computers, and you put that on the wall, and you have it recognize Bluetooth signals from passing devices. So when I walk up to the switch, it knows I'm at the switch, and when somebody else walks up to the switch, it knows they're at the switch. And then you can have gestures in front of this device that map specific to people. So this is sort of like the preset on a driver car, right? You get into a car and there's these presets and the you know the seats adjust to whoever is driving the car. So you know you can imagine you have these switches all around and when I go up to the switch here in my house and um, I bop it like a button, it turns lights on and off. And when I rotate my hand around it, it, it turns the you know the temperature up or the temperature down. But somebody else could go up to it and you know when they bop it it turns the fan on and when they move their hand back and forth, it turns, you know, the dimmer up or the dimmer down for the light. So it was basically this, what would a switch look like for truly ubiquitous computing? And, uh, that was like a prototype that, uh, I worked on. That's very cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I was just wondering like if I did that around here, what my wife would think, uh, <laughs> she's pretty replace you replace all of the uh, all of the switches, and everybody's like, "I don't even know what to do anymore." Can you reboot the light switch, please? <laughs> oh, hang on, I gotta patch it. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I, I, actually, I suppose we should mention real quick in case anybody's not from the leap is a little. I know it's like what, like um, oh, it's probably two like centimeters this, by ten or something like that. Yeah, little. it's like the the size of a five stick pack of gum. Yeah, and it's just a little a little set of infrared cameras that can see your hand over it, and it's got some. Some uh, some some firmware that helps it do gesture recognition. Yep. Yeah, they're really neat. Yeah, yeah. When I when you showed one off at, um, I think it was Strange Loop last year, and I immediately ordered one, and then yeah. never wound up doing anything useful with it. But I had a whole bunch of ideas. Yeah, yeah. I, I uh, participated in uh, the sort of the dev process with uh, Leap Motion on doing that. So I have every version of every dev board from the very first one until the production one. So, wow. And they're just sitting around here in the office right now. So, yeah, that's cool. It's a good it's thing they're not cool. big, right? What's up? It's a good thing they're not big. Yeah, like it was yeah. the size of a VCR or something you wouldn't be able to get in your yeah. office. Yeah, no, it's easy to have them just sitting in a pile somewhere. So, well, I mean, uh, what else? Is there anything else that we that we should definitely talk about today that you would like to to get out into the world? Yeah, I just, you know, this will be my banner for the next I don't know how long, but there is a lot of power in specification. And I just, I, 
you know, I'm seeing it pop up on Twitter more, and uh, I really encourage those people to spread the good news that sometimes systems are really complex, and certainly example-based tests aren't going to test these very complex systems. And you know, specification and generative testing and tools like Alloy and uh, TLA Plus and stuff like that, you don't need to use them across your entire project. You know, use them on the hard parts. I think everybody will see the benefits. And that's, you know, I'll step off the soapbox. I just, I think it's important to say, and I think it's important for everybody to get a little curious about it. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, you don't have to step off the soapbox. The whole point of having you on the show is because I think you're super interesting. And I think our listeners will agree with me. And I I certainly, that's been borne out by our conversation. Do you want, I mean, do you want to elaborate on that at all? I mean, what's the, is there something that led you to that conclusion or? or... Yeah, so, I mean, when I, I went to school for software engineering, so in addition to taking sort of the core computer science classes like you would expect, you know, AI and data structures and algo and stuff like that, I took a lot of classes in, you know, software evolution and software project management and software architecture. And one of the classes was called software specification and analysis. And another one was called uh, validation and verification. And um, in these classes, I, I learned different aspects of formal methods, you know, so I was using Zed at the time, which I think is, you know, significantly complicated, but pretty powerful. It took a while for me to really see the benefit of specifying your your software in a way that, you know, you can show some facts or, or find some holes in your logic about your system. And, and for me, that's the real benefit, right? Like, uh, I'll use Alloy as an example, but MIT's Alloy is, is pretty simple to write in. It's all based around sets and discrete math, and so it's, it's really easy to reason about. And you basically make these, you know, these prepositions, you basically say, like, I think, you know, here's a system that has these properties, and you, you specify them as sets, and you say, is there any case where these things don't hold, right? This is my understanding of the system. Prove me wrong. And it will come up with a counterexample, and it will say, this is the counterexample where that doesn't hold. Uh, and you can model anything in this, right? You can model distributed interactions, or you can model, you know, file systems or, or whatever you want. You can model the spec for XML if you want to, and you can find holes where the specification is missing or lacking or underspecified or overspecified or anything like that. So when I have a, a parsing problem or when I have a, you know, a weird, all right, I want to see if you know, my notion of privacy matches or my notion of how the file system should work here matches, or I have this really crazy distributed system and I want to see if this one property about it holds. You know, it's going to take me, you know, maybe it takes me an hour, maybe it takes me two hours to to write this all up in Alloy. Then I click one button and it runs for less than a minute and says, you know, I found a counterexample. It basically says, Paul, you're an idiot. You forgot to think of this thing. And it, it does that before I even touch the code or before I, you know, deploy a system. And I think that's, I think that's a pretty powerful thing. Hmm. That's cool. I will have to look into that. I have not... Uh... It's funny that you say it. it's. It's my today is today is the day of my twentieth college reunion, and of course I went to MIT. So you mentioned their their product. I'm I'm here with you instead of there with 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 them. But you know that's that's still a good thing. <laughs> it's making me feel old a bit. But uh, anyway, so no, that's super cool. I have to. I think uh, that might be a topic for another show because it sounds like the sort of thing that uh, we could dive into. And actually, we talked sure. a little bit with um, with Kyle Kingsbury when he was on the show about. Nasos, and he mentioned uh, a couple of the tools you mentioned. Um, so I think it's an area that bears more discussion. Um, I would love it if you would be uh, willing to come back on 
some time and talk about that, uh, educate us all on that a bit more or uh, on one of the assuredly innumerable other things you will have worked on by then. That'd be, that'd be great. I hope you. Sure. Yeah. I'd love to. I'm having a blast. Craig. So for the listeners, I will say, you know, I, I tend to bug Craig throughout the day, you know, or rather throughout the week. And so it's, it's fun to be doing the show with him and, and have just a casual conversation instead of always having work conversations. So it's, it's awesome. I'm having a blast. Yeah. Well, you know, it's been great. I, I, so I will, I will admit here in front of everyone that, you know, I was one of the people that interviewed you Yes. and I was, I was, I was ever so slightly skeptical. And, and I can say this freely <laughs> because the same was true for me. Like when I, when I was, um, when, the, when at the time relevance was considering hiring me, there was a a person and I won't I won't say his name, but he was he was like I don't think we should hire that guy. I didn't say I don't think we should hire that guy, but right. I did say you know I definitely am glad I'm going to get a chance to talk to him because you know I'm not sure. And I'll say right now that I was 100% wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so you know it's been it's been great to to have you at the company and uh, so group hug right. Yeah, totally. All right, cool. All right, well I think that brings us to the point where we get to share your other music choice on the way out of the show. What would you like us to play? Yeah, let's go for something a little funky, a good a good summer tune. Let's go with uh, Bra by Samande. All right, that's coming up in the background right now. I will take this opportunity to thank you very, very much, Paul, for coming on the show, taking time out. I actually asked you, it was like an hour and a half ago, <laughs> if you wanted to be on the show. And you're like, sure, because I was just sitting there thinking, I'm like, oh, yeah, Pedestal is coming up. And there's like these other six things I'd like to talk to Paul about. So appreciate you uh, taking the time, especially on short notice, to uh, come and hang out with us and uh share with everybody the very, very interesting partial list of things that you're doing. So thanks a ton. Yeah, thank you. I had a blast. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was certainly fun for me too. So we will go ahead and close it down there. This has been the Cognicast. You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc., whom you can find on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. Our guest today was Paul DeGrandis on Twitter at O-Paulese, O-H-P-A-U-L-E-E-Z. The Cognicast is produced with help from Alex Miller, Alex War, Damian Mack, David Chalinski, Jamie Kite, Justin Gatlin, Lake Denman, Luke Vanderhart, Lynn Grogan, Mark Phillips, Michael Fogus, Ryan Neufeld, Sam Umbach, and Stuart Sierra. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production by Russ Olson. Our producer is Sandy Ezel. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening.